Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. Now I know we got started late and somebody already commented, well you could divide the sermon in half. But I, I've, I've been told I talked too fast already. So Hebrews 2. Verses 1 through 4 this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This morning I want to talk to you about the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. When I lived in Pennsylvania, there was a river that wasn't far from my house that people would like to go to and they'd like to float down this river. And so people would go and they'd get their inner tubes or their raft or whatever and they'd float down the river to a spot and maybe have someone pick them up uh, in this certain spot. And I was always up for an adventure and so I decided that I would float down this river uh, one day with some teenagers. And... Uh, as we were floating, we were coming up to a bridge, and one of the teens cautioned uh, me that at this bridge there was a dangerous spot that was under the bridge that would suck your tube over next to the pylon of the bridge. And if you weren't careful, the undercurrent would, would pull you or flip you off your inner tube and could pull you down. And uh, it was very dangerous, and, and you could possibly drown in this spot. It was It was uh, great to hear those words, but he warned me. I didn't think very much of it. Uh, I mean, I drifted down uh, rivers before and and done this sort of thing, and people had done this for a long time. Sure enough, as I got close to the bridge, the current started pulling me towards that pylon. And my tube drifted closer and closer, and thankfully I was able to get off my inner tube and get to the shore and I end up walking around the dangerous spot before I was sucked under. But about a week or so after that incident, I was outside and I noticed a helicopter hovering um, above the river in that area and all kinds of sirens were going off. And sure enough, a lady was on her tube with her child and the current caused them to drift over towards that pylon that was in the river and they went off the tube and her child was sucked under the current down to that pylon and ended up drowning. You see, as people floated down that river, they didn't pay attention to the current that would cause their tube or the raft to drift into danger. And it would slowly get sucked over to the, to the dangerous spots and they just wouldn't know. John Hall wrote a song that Casting Crowns sings. It's called 
slow fade. It goes like this. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go. For it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid. When you give yourself away, people never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. When flattering leads to compromises, the end is always near. Be careful, little lips, what you say, for empty words and promises leave broken hearts astray. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. The journey from your mind to your hands is shorter than you're thinking. Be careful if you think you stand. You just might be sinking. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's so easy for us to get caught up in life and not realize we're drifting. Things always seem important when we're in the midst of them, but in the light of eternity, seldom are they really important. And the things that really are important in light of eternity, we find ourselves spending very little time focusing on. So what happens is when we find the Holy Spirit bringing conviction on our lives for the things that really matter, you know, things like being a witness and sharing the gospel, we usually find a way to just justify what we're doing. We will say things like, when I have more money, I'll do this. Or when I have more time, I will do this. Or when my kids are not so busy, I will do this. But we fail to realize that our spiritual procrastination can be eternally fatal. I love what I used to hear Ray Comfort say all the time. You are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die. Listen, death is the only sure thing in life. Every single person on the face of this earth will one day die. And you would think that that would cause us to stop and think that we all live our lives, we would live our lives in such a way that we would have eternity in mind knowing that one day we will all die, but we just have too much to do, we have too much work, we have too much school, we have to go about getting our career and we have to raise our kids and and we say, well, after I get all that done, then I will live with eternity in mind. Listen, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your family. There's nothing wrong with having a career. There's nothing wrong with having a nice job. And there's not even anything wrong with having a great deal amount of money. But all of those things can crowd out what is the most important thing and we get in danger of drifting and becoming spiritual drifters. The author of Hebrews spent the first chapter writing about the supremacy of Christ over all things. As we read the first chapter, we notice that the author has not given any specific application to the fact that Christ is supreme over all things. And now in chapter 2, the author pauses and gives some application to what he has just written. He does this by giving us a warning. 
There will be other warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. But the warning is specifically addressed to those who profess to be Christians who are in the church. The author also includes himself with his readers. He faced the same temptations they faced. He was not exempt from the temptations that they faced. He was like any pastor. And and he's applying uh, this to himself as he writes it before he applies it to his congregation. The author is making a clear point. And that is this. In regards to your salvation, you're either drifting out of neglect or you're growing out of deliberate effort. And right away he makes it clear that since we have such a great salvation, then we must be careful not to drift from it. And there are three main points I believe that we need to draw from this passage of Scripture this morning. First, Christ offers a great salvation. That's what he says. Christ offers a great salvation. Look at verse 3. The author of Hebrews, describing salvation, calls it a great salvation. Now, someone might say, well, what makes salvation so great? And perhaps we would say, well, it's the, the deliverance from the evil and suffering and death that this world offers. That makes salvation great. Or someone might say salvation delivers us to God and makes us acceptable to God and, and gives us eternal life, and that makes salvation great. Or perhaps we would say um uh, something like, like salvation is so great because, because of a, a new heaven and a new earth or, or that it is reward heaped upon reward and that makes salvation so great. Or maybe we would merely say salvation provides us with a savior that we so desperately need. The author of Hebrews gives us some reasons of why salvation is so great. And the first reason he gives us is this. Everyone needs it. Everyone needs it. You know, as Christians, we talk about salvation. Sometimes we even th- say things like this. Are you saved? And there are times that I wonder if people that we speak to even know what we're talking about when we say things like, well, are you saved? Sometimes I wonder if we know what we're talking about. For instance, if I asked you, how is it that someone is saved? Would you be able, be able to answer that question? Or if I asked you, how do you lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ? Would you be able to do that? Look with me again at verse 3 when, it's, when it is uh, talking about salvation. What does it say? It says, how shall we escape? Now to escape means to run away from or avoid confinement or danger successfully. When we talk about escape, sometimes we talk about prisoners who escape, or or sometimes we talk about uh, POWs who have escaped from the hostile enemy and many times even torture or death. Well, well, think with me for a moment of what salvation is an escape from. Every person that has ever been born is a sinner by their very nature. And because of this sin, they are under the just condemnation of God. Because we all have broken God's law, we ensure the penalty of breaking God's law, and that penalty is eternal hell, and the wages of our sin is death. Every person ever born stands guilty before God, and it is only an act of mercy by God that keeps us from hell's eternal flames. Salvation is not about a better outlook on our life, 
or how to have a more positive self-image about us. Salvation is not about Jesus helping you achieve the American dream or improving your marriage or achieving more with your life or even about you even having peace and joy. That's not what salvation is about. Salvation is not about something that you just had to had to have and to live your life happy. You have to have salvation. Uh, to be successful in life, uh, you have to have salvation. Or to feel complete in life, you have to have salvation. That is not salvation. Salvation is about the fact that you need to be rescued from the wrath of God. You have to be rescued from the wrath of God. And that Jesus Christ is your rescue. That's salvation. Every person is in intimate danger of facing God's wrath. And everyone ever needs salvation. Not only is salvation needed by everyone, but the author of Hebrews also makes it clear that the Lord Jesus Christ secures our salvation. Look at the first word of chapter 2. It is the word therefore. And you have heard me say before, when we see that word therefore, we need to ask, what is it therefore? It is usually to point back to something. And that is the case here. It's looking back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we read about the supremacy of Christ over all things. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And he's the exact representation of the nature of God. He upholds everything by the word of his power. He made purifications for sins and now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what chapter 1 is about. He's superior to the angels because they worship and serve Him. Therefore, Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to secure your salvation. And it's such a great salvation. The whole first chapter is a description of how supreme the Son of God is. How the Son is exalted far above everything else. How He's giving this detailed description of the glory of the Son of God. And then after this, uh, he, He gives this warning. And so he provides the doctrine. This is who the Son of God is. And he gives us all this doctrine in chapter 1. This is the Son of God. And then he says, this is how we respond to it. You see, sound doctrine is the foundation for practical application. When the doctrine is sound, when we realize, oh, this is who the Son of God is, then the application, the response to that makes sense. And so, here's the doctrine of the Son of God. This is who He is. This is what He's accomplished. That is the foundation. And because of what He has accomplished, it is such a great salvation. I'm not sure why, but we live in a time where Christians are shying away from doctrine. Pastors no longer talk about it. They think doctrine causes division or they believe that theology does not really matter. And for whatever reason, pastors will, will talk about many practical things like how to have a good marriage and how to properly handle your money and how to deal with suffering. And they give these messages based on, on pop psychology instead of scripture. And the fact of the matter is many of the sermons preached today you could read in a popular magazine because there's little biblical content to them at all and definitely no doctrine in them. We must understand, church, that proper doctrine leads to appropriate application. 
This is what the author of Hebrews is doing. Here's the great doctrine of Christ and who He is. And here's the application, which is why he starts off chapter 2 with the word therefore. Because of all this I just said, therefore salvation is so great. Because it comes from the eternal Son of God. He became sin for us as He announced it to us according to verse 3. The whole point is that He secured our salvation. And we shouldn't neglect it. So this salvation is great because everyone needs it. Because Jesus secures it. Thirdly, because eyewitnesses confirmed it. If salvation is not confirmed as truth, then there's nothing great about it. It's made up. It's a fairy tale. If there's no factual basis to it, then it might be a nice little story that we tell people, but it's not worth shedding your blood for. Look again at verse 3. It says that this great salvation was declared by, by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. By the way, that verse is why some people feel that the Apostle Paul did not write the book of Hebrews because it seems to place the author in a category of those who did not hear the gospel directly from Jesus. And Paul said he did hear the gospel directly from Jesus. However, the point is that Jesus declared the gospel and it comes directly from those who were eyewitnesses to his earthly ministry. Salvation is not just some made-up story. It is not like a bunch of people got together one day and they decided, hey, uh, we got this great trick that we're going to play on some people. It wasn't a bunch of, of religious uh, people or philosophers that thought up some speculative nonsense to make everyone think that they could be reconciled to God. The gospel is verifiable historical fact. Jesus really lived. Jesus really taught. Jesus really performed miracles. And it's all recorded in the Gospels by those that were really there. Jesus really died on a cross. And He was physically raised from the grave before He ascended into heaven. Eyewitnesses saw it and they recorded it for us in the Scriptures. If these were some fictional stories made up by a bunch of people, then those that read about them during the times would have laughed in absurdity at the apostles. They would have said, this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. But that didn't happen. You know why? Because they were eyewitness accounts. And why would an apostle die for a lie? They wouldn't. These witnesses spoke the truth about Jesus even when it cost them their lives. Everyone needs it. Jesus secures it. Eyewitnesses confirmed it. God bore witness to it. God bore witness to it. Look at the beginning of verse 4. God bore witness by signs and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now this is a reference to the miracles that were performed by the apostles and recorded for us in the book of Acts to read. Signs, wonders, and miracles kind of mean the same thing, but they have a slightly different aspect to them. Signs points to the significance of miracles. And so when we, when we read about the raising of the dead man, it is a picture for us of how God acts to save souls. Wonders focuses on the human response 
to a miracle. God does the humanly impossible and people are in awe of what they just saw or what they saw happen. Various miracles is a focus on God's power display, displayed to us in numerous or multiple ways. And then it speaks of the gifts of the Holy Spirit given according to His will. This is about how God graciously gives spiritual gifts to His people to accomplish His purpose. Paul gives an explanation of those gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about gifts and how not everyone has the same gifts, but as in the human body, so it is in the body of Christ that each member has a function for the health of the body. I dealt with that specifically when I preached through 1 Corinthians. But many people today think that the church should receive and use these miraculous gifts, like speaking in tongues, healings, and prophecies, like the early church did. Those that think the gifts are still active today are called continuationists. Those that say those gifts have ceased entirely and they're no longer active because when the New Testament closed its canon, those people are called cessationists. Now, if you study the scripture, you will see that often these gifts came in critical times and it would seem that by the time Hebrews was written, they had somewhat diminished. Otherwise, why would he say God bore witness by them? Instead, he would have said they, they were ongoing and happening in our midst that God is bearing witness by them. Even if we look at the book of Acts, we will notice that early on we saw many miracles. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, if you remember as we studied that, they were sending Paul's handkerchief around and people would touch Paul's handkerchief and be healed. However, later on when Timothy has a stomach problem, Paul did not heal Timothy, nor did he tell Timothy to have faith and he would be healed, nor did he say, hey Timothy, hold up a second, I'm sending you my handkerchief. But instead, what did he tell him to do? He says, drink a little wine for your stomach. He also left Trophimus sick at Miletus. I say this just to say that it seems like this is not God's normal way of doing things. However, I personally don't restrict God's ability. If he wants to perform a miracle, he can perform a miracle. As far as speaking in tongues, yes, you can talk to me later about that if you want to have a deep conversation about speaking in tongues. But I would say 99% of what we see happening today is not speaking in tongues. All this is to say simply this. God bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit to show that Christ offers a great salvation. It would seem that the signs, wonders, and miracles and miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were given to confirm that Christ offers salvation. And it would seem that this is not how God chooses to operate today, right now, in our time on a consistent basis. And so Christ offers a great salvation. Everyone needed it. He secured it. Eyewitnesses confirmed it, and God bore witness to it. That's the first thing we see. You say, well, that was more than one thing. Well, it was one thing, but we had supporting points to it. Okay. Second thing, there are consequences for neglecting such a great salvation. Have you ever said to someone, do this or suffer the consequences? That sounds real mean, like you're talking to a kid. You either do that or suffer the consequences. What's the point of that? Why do we say things like that? Well, the point is that disobedience brings consequences, right? So, ne so does neglect. So does our actions, etc. 
Now, the author of Hebrews does not lay out for us the consequences right here in this verse. He does later on in chapter 10, where he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, immediately, someone is going to say, well, believers have eternal security. And you would be right. Believers do have eternal security as long as they are believers. You see, the book of Hebrews confronts the idea that you can be a Christian and live however you want without worry. We have this confrontation throughout the book of Hebrews. I've said it before, faith professed is not faith possessed. For whatever reason, we have fallen into this trap of thinking that you can be a Christian without ever living for Christ. That mentality has permeated the American culture and American Christianity. And we say, oh, well, that person, they must be a carnal Christian. We've even had songs written about it called, I don't want to be a carnal Christian. But I just don't believe there is such a thing. You see, we have all kinds of people saying, well, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but I'm never going to submit to Him as Lord. I'm not sure when we bought in the idea that we make Jesus Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord of nothing. He is the Lord. You can't make Him Lord. He is Lord. And so they think that they are going to heaven and the author of Hebrews flips that idea on its head. Either you're living for Christ and striving against sin or you're drifting and in danger of judgment. Those are the options. Now, that is not to say that true believers never drift. And it's not to say that true believers never sin. But it is to say that when true believers are confronted with their sin or confronted with the fact that they are drifting away from the Lord, if they're a true believer, they will turn from their sin and they will pursue holiness. However, if a professing Christian, again, the emphasis is on the word professing, refuses to turn from their sin, then they have no basis for any assurance of salvation. Furthermore, the longer someone continues in their sin, the more they should question whether their profession of faith was genuine or not. What has happened in American Christianity? I mean, people profess to be Christians. They continue in their sinful lifestyle. And then they blame it on the fact that they're a carnal Christian. And they, they give themselves of a, a, a false assurance that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Because they're just a carnal Christian. They're just going to barely make it in. And I'm saying to you, that option doesn't exist. Nowhere in Scripture does that option even exist. The author of Hebrews sets out to show that there are consequences for neglecting such a great salvation. And he does this by giving a contrast between the law and the gospel. And so he says, first, that there sanctions for breaking the law were severe. He says that in verse 2. Sanctions for breaking the law were severe. Verse 2 says, The message declared by the angels, this is a reference to the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, every commandment that was given had attached to it the appropriate penalty for disobeying it. For those who deliberately defiled or disregarded the law of God, there was no reprieve. Their direct disobedience ensured a death sentence. Sometimes it happened through stoning. Sometimes God would send punishment from heaven. These judgments weren't uh, 
weren't out of God being cruel to humanity, but they were out of God being just to humanity. Here's the law. Don't break it. You break it, you die. (laughs) That's just the way it was. And so, the author is making the argument, look, if you broke the law, the penalty was severe. And he does this in a way of comparison. Because neglecting the gospel brings far worse consequences. So, you break the law, the penalty is severe. Sanctions for breaking the law were severe. Neglecting the gospel brings far worse consequences. And so the author of Hebrews is making an argument from lesser to greater. The argument starts with breaking the law brought severe consequences. This is the lesser argument. Then he moves to the greater. Neglecting the gospel brings far worse consequences. The greater revelation possesses a greater responsibility. In verse 3, we know the revelation has come from Jesus as he's proclaimed it. And so the argument is that if the Jews who were under the law were punished severely for their disobedience, how much more then will we come under God's judgment if we call ourselves Christians but turn our backs on such a great salvation that has been offered to us through the death of God's own Son, which He Himself proclaimed, secured, eyewitnesses confirmed it, and God bore witness to it. That's what he's saying. How much more great is your, is your punishment when you turn your back on what I just revealed to you? We have committed the ultimate self-deception. If we believe that the demands of the gospel are somehow less demanding than the demands of the law. If we somehow confuse that grace means that we can live however we want, ignoring God's standard of holiness, and God is just up in heaven looking down on us, and he's ambivalent to everything that's going on, then we're dead wrong. Paul makes it clear that we don't use grace as a license for sin in Romans chapter 6. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews also makes it clear in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, when he says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? To drift away from the gospel after you've had exposure to it, does not mean that you've lost your salvation. It means that you never had it. It does not mean that you're a carnal Christian and you drifted away and you never wanted to return. It means that you're lost. It's not a place that you want to be. You don't come and drift away and never return back. That's not the way things work. It's Nowhere is that in Scripture. Third, third point that we find in this passage of Scripture is this. Even though God's salvation is great, all are in danger of drifting. Even though God's salvation is great, all are in danger of drifting. Again, I want to be clear that as a Christian, you can have moments where you drift away. But you will always desire to come back. It is impossible to drift away and never want to come back as a Christian. 
It's impossible. You say, well, how can you say that? Because when you become a Christian, who takes up residence in your life? The Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes, He is God. He's part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So then if we say that we can drift away and never want to come back, we're neglecting the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so you cannot possibly drift away and never want to return back. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit's not living in you. So in his warning, here the author of Hebrews includes himself, as I said at the beginning of the message, and he uses this word, we, and the reason these people were drifting was because they were facing trials and threats of persecution, which should tell us that when we are facing trials and threats of persecution, we need to be on high alert. You know why? Because we're in danger of drifting. However, there are other times in our lives when we're in danger of drifting away as well. So when we read the message, title, the title of this message, The Danger of Drifting, spiritually I want us to ask ourselves a question. What causes people to drift? I mean, what is it that I would want to know if I read that, The Danger of Drifting? Well, hopefully I'd want to know, how can I avoid drifting? And thankfully, the author of Hebrews tells us what causes drifting. Look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect? Drifting is caused by neglect. Most of the time, people don't drift intentionally. In other words, they're not out looking for ways that they can drift. For example, if you've ever been on a boat, you know that you have to be intentional about steering the boat to keep it from drifting with the currents. If you're in a strong current, you will have to keep constant watch over the boat to keep it on course. Guess what? We live in a world where there are constant pulls away from where we should be spiritually. There are things in our culture and, and all around us that cause us to be prone to drifting away. And if we neglect our salvation, we will drift. You don't even have to set out in your life to be rebellious. Most people don't live their lives in a way that they actively are pursuing to go to hell. Nobody's like, well, you know what? I think I'm just going to pursue to go to hell the rest of my life. That's pretty rare. They simply neglect salvation. While they navigate through their normal lives, they neglect salvation, and that's all it takes. That is, that is why in verse 1 it says, we are to pay attention. It is the same word that Jesus used when he told the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. The king is having a wedding feast for his son, and he sends the servants to invite people and tell them um, that he has prepared a feast, and it says that they paid no attention. And one went to his farm, and the other to his business. Jesus is not telling the parable to say, hey guys, you need to be careful of having farms and businesses. That's not why he's telling the parable. He's not saying those things are evil. That something's wrong with them. He's saying that if you neglect the invitation of the king because of your farm and business, there's a problem. You see, the picture is neglect is not always pursued. It's just what we do. What do you need to do in order to be lost and end up in hell? Nothing. That's the point. How do I go to hell? Do nothing. And you'll end up there. 
Just go through your life drifting and paying no attention to anything. Pay attention to everything else but salvation. And you're going to end up lost and in hell. If drifting is caused by neglect, then what is the cure? Or how can we prevent that? Well, again, the author of Hebrews answers that for us. So, drifting is caused by neglect. Drifting is prevented by paying attention. He says pay close attention. Verse 1 says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. When you attend church, pay attention to the message. Don't just go to church and sit there and tune out what's being said from the pulpit. And I'm not saying that just because I'm the pastor. Pay attention. Take notes. If you say, well, that's not my thing, then meditate on what's being said. Look at your notes through the week. Don't sit there and think about what you're going to do the rest of the week or what's gonna, uh, what you're going to eat for lunch or what, who's winning what game or whatever it might be. Or don't pay attention to what someone's wearing. It doesn't matter. Don't sit out there yawning and think, boy, I wish our pastor was more interesting. Pay attention. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in your mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I'd wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away. In a matter of our belief, as in all other matters, Christianity requires hard work. The New Testament describes a life of faith as a fight, a race, a field in which a farmer labors. Paul says in places all through the New Testament, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I fight. We have to pay attention. I don't mean just just in the service, but make deliberate deliberate effort to seek God. How much attention do you have to give or have you given to understanding the gospel? Do you read scripture with a mind that's engaged? Do you read it as, as you would a love letter from someone who you've been away from for a period of time? Do you read God's word as a treasure and you're seeking out the golden truths that are contained in it? Do you make spending time in your word and prayer a priority? Do you put any effort in your great salvation? Do you have goals for your spiritual growth? Do you read books that will help you know God even more? Are you involved in Sunday school uh, week after week? Do you go to midweek Bible study to help you grow in your faith and knowledge of who Jesus is? When you miss Sunday, do you listen to the sermon online? Do you listen to sermons from other godly men that will help you be more godly in your walk and faith in Jesus Christ? Do you cut things out of your life that cause you to be distracted from such a great salvation? Do you pay attention? Drifting is prevented by paying attention. By paying close attention. You can't just go through your life kind of ho-hum. Too many Christians think the sum of Christianity is Sunday morning sitting in a pew. And I think that's it. It is so much more than that.
Some of you in here are married. Now, husband, suppose you said to your wife, Honey, I love you, but I just don't want to spend time with you anymore. And even though I love you, I think we should just do our kind of do our own thing. You know, you do what you like to do, and I'm going to do what I like to do. And, and I'm going to move out, and I'm going to live in my own place so I can do my own thing. And I think if we see each other about five minutes a day, that's going to be good. Well, you probably pick yourself up off the floor, first of all. But, I mean, that seems crazy. Because marriage is about relationship. You take time to spend with one another. You put effort into your marriage to maintain it. And if you neglect it and devote your attention to all these other things, guess what? Your marriage is going to fail. Marriage is worth the effort we put into it in order to maintain it. I still put effort into my marriage, probably not as much as I should. But I don't think that, that um, you know, that you can have a strong marriage and never spend time or effort. In it. I've counseled all kinds of couples on their marriage. And I'm not like, well, I've done so much counseling, I don't need any work on mine. I can just sit back and not worry about it. Everything's under control. Here's what I want you to understand. As great as marriage is, salvation is greater. Don't neglect it. Don't drift from it. Don't get distracted by other things because salvation is so great. We must pay close attention to it. Listen, you are either drifting because of neglect or you're growing because you are paying close attention to it. There is no in-between. And so I ask you this morning, which is it? Remember, it's possible to drift for a time as a believer, but it's not possible to stay there. And so I ask you this morning, are you a believer that's drifting? Or are you a believer that's growing? Or are you even a believer this morning? Because you're one of those three. You're either here and you're not even a believer. You're here and you're a believer that's growing in your faith. Or you're here and you're a believer that's drifting. And if you're drifting, it's time to stop. It's time to get serious. Here in a minute, we're going to sing a song. Let me stand down front. And maybe say, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those three. Which one is it? Maybe you say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm a believer, but I'm definitely not growing in my faith. Maybe you want some prayer. I'll be glad to pray with you. Or you can come up here and pray on your own. Or you can pray in your pew. And you you can wait till after the service and say, hey, can I talk to you? And I'll pray with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not even a believer. Maybe you've gone to church and you've gone through all the motion. You've done all the right things. But you don't even, you're not even a believer. You've drifted so long, you know you're not a believer. There's no way you can be, be a believer. Maybe that's you this morning. And you want to know how. It is that you place your faith in Christ. I'll be glad to talk with you. Maybe this morning you just say, I'm growing. I'm growing in my faith. Would you take time to pray for our church? If that's you, would you take time to pray that others would grow in their faith? That we'd grow as a body of Christ. That God would use us to have an impact in our community. I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing a song. If you feel like you need to respond, 
I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you.